Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and your grace, and we ask that your spirit will be with us and you will guide us in our study today. And we also ask that your will be done and what uh, the storm is coming in towards Florida, that you will you know, oversee and be with the families down there that are um, uh, preparing for the storm, and that your will be done in uh, directing and intervening. And I pray that you will, uh, you will open avenues for this message to go forward uh, so that the world will be light and you will come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number 11 in the quarterly, the least of these, ministering to those in need. And 11, uh, the title is Living the Advent Hope. What does the title of the lesson bring to mind? Do you live the Advent hope? Do you have hope, real hope, that the Lord will come in your lifetime? Or is it, I'm hoping and I believe the Lord's going to come, but it's my kids or grandkids that will be around, not me. I still believe the Lord can come in our lifetime. What do you think about this quote? This is out of a book called Testimonies, Volume 9, page 11. What do you think about this quote? The days in which we live are solemn and important. The Spirit of God is gradually but surely being withdrawn from the earth. Plagues and judgments are already falling upon the despisers of the grace of God. The calamities by land and sea, the unsettled state of society, the alarms of war are portentous. They forecast approaching events of the greatest magnitude. The agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crisis. Great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. Do you hear the final movements of the rapid ones? Do you hear the idea in there that this could be quick? It could really go fast. Once it's like a tipping a set of dominoes, things are getting set in place. And when it tips, boom, it could go really quick. Which means that it still could happen if you believe, believe it that way in our lifetime. Does a quote like that give you hope or does it give you fear? What is your understanding of why calamities come? Why do calamities come as we approach end of time? Did you hear a reason in the quotation that I read? Is it because God is using his power to send calamities, or is it that God is slowly withdrawing his protective presence? Which do you understand is the reason the calamities come? Well, this uh, quotation said the Spirit of God is gradually but surely being withdrawn. Why would God gradually and surely withdraw his presence, his protective presence? Why would he do that? Because he's not wanted. Where is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit on earth? Where do these dwell? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's where God dwells. So what happens when billions of people permanently harden their heart? The Holy Spirit is gradually but surely being withdrawn. And as the Holy Spirit is gradually withdrawn, who gets more freedom to act? Satan and his, and his evil confederacies. Uh, so where do the calamities come out from? Do they come out from God or do they come out from Satan as God withdraws because we shut him out? So then what would you say the judgments of God are? 
the judgments of God. See, people use that in, in what law view do you look for? We come back to this question over and over again. Do you see God's universe operating like a human government, made up rules that require the magistrate, the ruling authority, the king of the universe, to use his power to punish rule breakers? That's how we run our governments. Do you see God running his universe that way, which is historic Christianity after the Roman infection? After Rome took over Christianity, the world began to view Christ and God's kingdom running the universe like Rome. Caesar runs Rome. Rules that require punishing rule breakers. Or do you see God as creator? Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. His laws are the laws upon which reality operate. And when you break those, you injure and damage yourself. And without our creator healing and restoring us, putting us right. What's another way word for putting us right? An old justifying us, that's right, without fixing us, then we disintegrate and die. Which way do you see it when you read these things about the judgments of God? Well, consider these two quotes. This is one out of the book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 587. How great is the long-suffering of God toward the wicked? The idolatrous idolatrous Philistines and backsliding Israel had alike enjoyed the gifts of his providence. 10,000 unnoticed mercies were silently falling in the path of ungrateful, rebellious men. Every blessing spoken to them of the giver, with the capital G, of the giver, but they were indifferent to his love. The forbearance of God was very great toward the children of men, but when they stubbornly persisted in their impenitence, He removed from them his protecting hand. They refused to listen to the voice of God in his created works. Remember the integrative evidence-based approach? God speaks in three places, scripture, science, experience. They refused to listen to the voice of God in his created works and in the warnings, counsels, and reproofs of his word, scripture. And thus he was forced to speak to them through judgments. What were his judgments? Well, then that's the first quote. Here's one. Manuscript released, volume 14, page 3. I was shown. That usually indicates she made this up. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They placed themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey and storm and tempest both by sea and land will be for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. What do you hear? What are God's judgments? Do you understand? When you talk to people who are stuck in an imperial law model, they actually teach a God and worship a God who's like Satan in character. He's imperial. He's the source of inflicted pain. He's the source of death. 
rather than the giver of life who only wants to heal us, only wants to restore us. And sadly, when we harden and persist on separating from us, he lets go. But when you let go and you're the source of life, what happens to those? You see, this is the big divide. How do you understand God's law? Second paragraph. It says, but Jesus also was clear that his kingdom was a different kind of kingdom, not of this world. And yet to come in full by his incarnation, the his incarnation, ministry, death and resurrection, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. But Jesus also looked forward to a time his kingdom would fully replace the kingdoms of this world and God's reign would be made complete. While there are no time prophecies left unfulfilled that would point to a time and date of the second coming, there are none of those. Is there anything in the Bible that, pre- that the Bible predicts that still needs to happen before the second coming? Not related to time, but actual event. What is it? Jesus said, Matthew twenty four fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Not a time prophecy, but is it a prophecy? So, the gospel of what kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said. What kingdom? My kingdom is not of this world. Has the gospel of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of a designer, the kingdom of the the, the God of love gone to the world, or has the gospel of an imperial dictator, a Roman overlord, gone to the world? Which has gone to the world? How does most of the world view God? Consider this quote. It was sent as a message to the SDA church from Ellen White at the 1888 General Conference. You can find it in a second manuscript release, page 58. Said my guide. What does that mean? What do most Adventists believe that's referring to? An angel from God. That's what most Adventists would say. An angel from the Lord told her what you're about to hear. You can believe or not believe it, but that's what she believed, and that's what she's sending a message about. There is much light yet to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. This message, understood in its true character and proclaimed in the Spirit, will lighten the earth with its glory. The great decisive question is to be brought before all nations, tongues, and people. The closing work of the third angel's message will be attended with power that will send the rays of the Son of Righteousness into all the highways and byways of life and decisions will be made for God. Did you notice? So what is the light that was yet? There is much light yet to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. What is this light that was yet to shine forth? Could it be this truth that God's law is not imperial? Could it be that it's a call to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea? Meaning, call to understand God's laws as the protocols upon which life are built, design law. This is a light that the church for over a thousand years had not understood. Rejecting the imperial, penal, legal law model. 
the good news that Jesus came to actually achieve a remedy to the sin problem so that we might, and it says also it was not just about the law, it was about the gospel of righteousness. What was the 1888 message? Righteous by faith message. This is the gospel. Much light yet to be revealed about this. If you understand the design law, that Christ came to achieve remedy, to fix what Adam did to the species, then the message of the good news is that God's law, God is the creator, his laws are designed. And through Christ, we become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that's substitution. Some will argue that our ministry denies the substitutionary nature of Christ's mission to earth. We do not deny it. There it is, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us, but here's the reason. So that we might become the righteousness of God. This was denied by leadership in 1888 in this organization. They did not like this message, they rejected it. And they, they stayed with the imperial law model. And in the imperial law model, the way the righteousness by faith messages go forward is like this. You accept Jesus as your Savior in heaven, his record gets applied to your record, and God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. There's much light to go forward about the gospel of righteousness, the good news that you can be reborn, recreated, regenerated, healed, have the law written in your heart and mind, become, have the mind of Christ, be partaker of the divine nature. This is a reality when we are indwelled by the Spirit of God who takes what Christ achieves and reproduces it in us. We become new beings, new creatures. The old is gone, the new has come. This is the real gospel message that's rejected in the Roman imperial view. So today there's still much light to go forward about God's law and the gospels of righteousness. Consider this quotation, considering the final message of mercy. What are we to be taking to the world? What's this light that will lighten the world? Because we, we want Christ to come. We want the advent. Do you believe it can happen in our lifetime? What do we think is the obstacle here? Well, there's no time prophecy relating. I'm suggesting the obstacle is God is waiting for the gospel to go forward. Well, what is the gospel? The good news. It's the everlasting good news, the eternal good news. Many people say, well, the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus died to, to, to pay their sin debt. Well, but the, Revelation 7, the eternal good news, it's good news, it's eternal. Not just eternity future, eternal means eternity past. It's always good news. It's always been good news. It will always be good news. And in eternity past, there wasn't even a human being for Christ to die for. But there was still good news. And what's the good news? Which is the good news? Jesus died to pay your sin so that the Father won't kill you and you're safe in heaven because you have someone standing between you and the Father to protect you from his wrath. Is that really good news? And if you step out of line, he'll be legally able, because it's all been done, he can just snuff you at any time if you ever step out of line again. Is that good news? Or is the good news ultimately God is not the kind of person Satan says he is? So this quote, Chris Object Lessons 4.16, considering that final gospel message to lighten the world. It is the darkness of, and this is 4.15 and 16. 
It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. Why do you think that is? Because it's imperial law view that teaches that God must do this. And if you listen to just Christian radio, you will hear over and over and over again that God must punish, that God must punish. It's been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be said the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory, fear God, be in awe of him, and give him glory. We are to manifest his glory. We are to live Christ-like. We are to be indwelled by the Spirit. We are to be transformed, okay, renewed. You're going to give him glory. Uh, the children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. The light of the S-U-N, the light of the S-U-N, Son of Righteousness, is to shine forth in good works, in words of truth and deeds of holiness. And you think the darkness here, use this metaphor, you're in a cave. You've been in a cave with no light for a week. They bring you out at noon. How is that? They bring you out at four in the morning and let you sit there and watch the sunrise. How is that? The S-U-N of righteousness is rising with healing, and it says in many versions, wings, but the, the Hebrew actually means beams. It's the beams of light. He's rising. At this time in history, the sun of righteousness is rising. More and more truth is being revealed. You and I are to be assimilating the truth, taking it in so that we can handle more and more truth. But those who reject the truth, those who say no to the truth, they remain in the darkness about God. And when he comes and reveals himself in his life-giving glory, there are going to be two classes of people. Those who, it says in 1 John, we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. This is our God. We've waited for him. We live in the life-giving glory. And there'll be that other group that when he reveals himself will beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the glory. They don't want to be there. And this is assimilating truth. Are we embracing it? Do you hear the first angel's message in this quote? The hour of his judgment has come. Do you hear that? The hour of his judgment has come. Or do you hear it through the imperial view? When you hear the hour of his judgment has come, the hour that he sits in the tribunal goes over records to make a judgment. Is that what you hear? Or do you hear Romans 3, 4? And look it up in your Bible, Romans 3, 4. God, may you be true, be proved right when everyone else is false. May you win your case when you are being tried or you are being judged. Romans 3, 4. Who's the one on trial here? Who did Satan lie about in heaven? You're in a loving marriage and someone lies to your spouse and tells them you've been cheating and you haven't, but your spouse believes the lie and moves out. But you love your spouse. You recognize your spouse is a victim of a liar. So you want your spouse back. What will you have to do if your spouse believes you've been, you've been cheating? What will you have to do if you want them back? Will you have to prove your innocence? Who's the one on trial? You are. You've done nothing wrong because you've been lied about. That is what's going on in the great controversy. God has been lied about. The good news is all these lies are wrong. The truth is God is exactly like Jesus revealed him to be. Yes? You just explained to me something I've wondered about, why it takes so long for the universe to get it 
And I think it's because to prove that you never did something is much harder than to prove that you did something. Correct. Exactly correct. That's exactly the right answer. To prove you didn't do it takes time and revelation. Mm-hmm. So you hear the first angel's message in that quote. And then here's one out of uh, First Bible Commentary 1104. Our duty, to, our duty to obey this law is to be the burden of this last message of mercy to the world. Last message of mercy revealed the truth about God's character of love. We just read that. Wait a second. Here's the last message of mercy, and it's our duty to obey this law. God's law is not a new thing. It is not holiness created, but holiness made known. It is a code of principles expressing mercy, goodness, and love. It presents to the fallen humanity the character of God and states plainly the whole duty of man. What kind of law is this? A list of rules? If you don't do it, I'll punish you, I'll kill you? Or is it the principles of love, how life is actually built? You see, think about the laws of health. You want freedom. You want... You cannot have freedom violating the laws of health. You eat potato chips and Big Macs and fries every day of the week, you will lose liberty. You will. You'll become obese. You'll become deconditioned. You won't be able to climb stairs. You will, uh, you will get heart disease. You will get little tiny strokes if you don't die of a heart attack first. And the neurologist will tell you that their goal as a neurologist is to keep a person alive long enough for them to die from a, from a heart attack. It's to prevent a stroke long enough for the heart attack to kill them. That's the goal of the neurologist. They don't want the stroke. And, and if you think about it, you want to die from the heart attack. You don't want to die from the stroke. But the point is, we can't have freedom. We can't have health in violations of the laws of health. That's true in all of God's design laws. They're for our health and well-being. So, after thinking about the three angels' messages, and you know them by heart, Revelation 14. I'm going to read Revelation 18 and see what you hear. After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and the haunt of every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Do you hear anything that sounds similar to the three angels' messages? But this is Revelation 18, it's not Revelation 14. What's going on? Well, the Adventist church believes that the three angels' messages began to be preached in the 19th century. In the 1800s. That's when the three angels' messages started to be preached. The message of the first, second, and third angels. But, this message is to go forward again with new power, new light. That's why it's repeated. It has to go, something happens. Its first presentation didn't have the effect it was supposed to have. And and so it has to go forward again with a special emphasis on the fallen nature of Babylon. What's the fallen nature of Babylon? What is Babylon in Bible symbolism? 
systems of religion that are in opposition to God, that are confused and contradictory. Well, what is the core difference in the Babylonian system, in the pagan systems? What's the core root difference between a pagan worship system and God's system? Pagan systems require payment to a god to get mercy. It's imperialistic. The god is the source of punishment. The god is the source of inflicted. It's all imperialistic, imposed law, rule systems, do this or else. This is the core difference. This is the Babylonian system. And when you understand God's law functions like human law, then you begin arguing over which method of baptism, what's the right way to do communion, what's the right words to say before you do a baptism, even if you do it in the right way. And people begin worrying, well, I was baptized, but my pastor told me that they didn't say in the name of the Spirit. They just said in the name of the Father and the Son. They didn't say the Spirit. So does that, does that really count? Am I really, am I good or not? And so people begin worrying about all the little technicalities of things because it's, you gotta get the rules right. The root corruption is this idea of imperialistic punishing God with rules that if you don't do it, he's the source of pain. So let me read you those same verses out of the Remedy, New Testament. After this, I saw another messenger coming down from heaven, symbolizing the godly origin of his message. He had the great authority and he had the great authority and power of truth, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a voice reverberating through the earth, he shouted, Babylon the Great is a fallen system of religious tradition, fable, and falsehood, distorting the truth about God. Every demonic distortion about God, every evil attitude toward God, and all filthy and destructive heart motives find their home with her. For she intoxicates the world with her pagan views of God, maddening them with her adulterous ideas that God coerces and must inflict punishment if not properly appeased. Earth's leaders corrupt themselves with her by practicing her methods. And people not anchored in God's kingdom of love and those who wander from philosophy to philosophy fill their minds with her smorgasbord of lies. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Leave that confusing mess of evil thinking so that you will not share in her spiritual sickness and rebellion and so that you will not receive the suffering she has chosen. What is the gospel of the kingdom? Jesus said in Luke seventeen twenty and 21, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations. What would you say that is? Would that be like rule keeping? Careful observations? observing all of the customs and rituals and and dressing in the correct way does not come with your careful observations, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. You see, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of truth, love, and freedom. Truth, love, and freedom are operational principles of living beings. It's not external. It operates in intelligent beings. You cannot get love, loyalty, devotion, trust by threatening to kill and punish people who do not love and trust you and are loyal to you. This is an interesting quote out of 20 Manuscript, uh, page 114. I ask you, 
Is the kingdom of God within you? God's people are to be minutemen, always ready, always composed in Jesus. The time has come now when one moment we may be on solid earth and the next the earth may be heaving beneath our feet. Earthquakes will take place when least expected. Christianity has a much broader meaning than many have hitherto given it. It is not a creed. You mean, I, 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 it's not about uh, giving a public testimony to believing in the 28 right things and, and being dunked in the right way? That's, that's not what it is? It is not a creed. It is the word of him who lives and abides forever. It is a living, animating principle. And what's animating mean? It's a, it's a living, life-giving principle. That, make, that takes possession of mind, heart, motives, and the entire man. Christian, Christianity, oh, that all might experience its operations. It is a vital, personal experience that elevates, purifies, and ennobles the whole person. Is that what you experience? See, under a penal legal model, they teach you not to get that. What they teach you is... You need to claim the legal blood payment of Jesus, which we apply to a record book in heaven, to erase your records of sins, and you will be declared to be legally righteous even though you on earth are not. It is not this life-changing, revitalizing, renewal, recreating, regenerating experience. That is what we get when we come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. The final message of mercy is the truth about God's character of love, which is founded on his government, which is his design law and how he does things. The final message is simply the truth about God, which has always been true. The eternal good news that God is love and his law is the design law of love built into reality. The protocols that life and health are based upon. And that Jesus is God's agency to restore God's law back into the species human. The systems of the world are fallen fallen into an imperial law model with its legal penal system that distort the truth about God. We are to give glory to God by revealing his character in our lives, his living law written into our hearts and minds, that we reflect him and the light of his glory will go to the world. Okay, now we can go to Sunday's lesson. <laughs> and there's a bunch more, so we're gonna, we have a lot of fun stuff today still to go through. It says, uh, first paragraph, throughout the Bible story, there is a repeated call from God's people, particularly those experiencing slavery, exile, oppression, poverty, and other injustice or tragedy, for God to intervene. The slaves in Egypt, the Israelites in Babylon, and many others called out to God to see and hear their suffering and to right these wrongs. And the Bible offers significant examples of God's actions to rescue and restore his people at times, even taking revenge on their oppressors and enemies. In this world... Do people segregate themselves into different groups, sects, creeds, religions, nationalities, divisions along racial lines, social lines, economic lines, and many others? Does this happen? And when this happens, do people end up exploiting and abusing people who aren't in their group? Why? What's the root cause of that? Is that God's design for human beings? Or is that... something's broken in his design that causes this. What is the root thing that causes this type of division? Selfishness, which is driven primarily by what emotion? Fear. Fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were 
afraid. And when you become fearful, you want to have more security to feel safe. We see threats and we see people who are different from us as a threat to us. And so we try to pull people that we feel safe around and identify in groups that are similar to us that make us feel more safe. And we then project our fears and insecurities on those that are different and we want to exploit, dominate, or take control of those people so that we can be in control. They can't hurt us. We're the ones with the power. This is what selfishness does. Yes, Wendell, you had a hand up. I was just wondering, that last or last phrase, at times even taking revenge on their oppressors and enemies, I don't see God taking revenge on anybody. I was wanting to know if we have examples, if someone could come with examples of where he has taken revenge on the enemies. So I will uh, give you many of examples that they would articulate. I would, I, first off, I want to say I agree with you. And also it depends on what you mean by revenge. If we use the definition in Isaiah, that's a different definition, isn't it? Right. But they would say the ten plagues of Egypt were punishing the Egyptians for the slavery. They would say um, God's uh, power at Jericho. They would say the, um, the 185,000 Assyrians and killing them with the angel through the night. That was taking revenge. Uh, they would give these examples as God killing or punishing or taking revenge. Do we understand it differently? Can we explain it differently? Anybody got an explanation that shows that's not revenge? First off, in Egypt, these were all vengeance on the gods of Egypt, not the people of Egypt. He was trying to enlighten all the people of the land, Israelites as well as Egyptians, that the pagan system of religion of Egypt was false to bring all people to a knowledge of him. And were were Israelites the only ones that left with Moses? There was a mixed multitude. Many of the Egyptians were brought to the light. He was trying to reach all the people there. So this was not an act of vengeance on the people. It was a demonstration that the gods were false and he was true. Very basic. This is level one moral development. Level one moral development is reward and punishment. Gods that, gods that are strong are the ones we worship. Gods that are weak, we don't worship. And so God's showing, I'm powerful, worship me. And he won some people to follow him. But they were still very primitive and very childish in their thinking and understanding. If we understand the great controversy context, after Adam and Eve sinned, the species human, unique species, there's no other species that's human that doesn't originate from Adam. Their angels are not human. They're intelligent beings, but they're not human. If you believe that there are other planets with other intelligence on them, they're not human. They're a different species. After Adam and Eve sinned, The species human has a condition which is terminal, dead in trespass and sin. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned, could the species human be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? It could not. So God says to the serpent in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. There's a Messiah promised. God, uh, God did not abandon us. Jesus is going to come to fix what Adam did, to change the trajectory, to intercede for us, not with his father, but the principalities and powers of darkness, hedges of protection. In our hearts, uh, I will uh, put enmity between you and the woman, putting a desire for good, uh, drawing us and wooing us back to God's side, and to intercede in the course of what sin does naturally. Sin naturally destroys and results in death. Christ came and destroyed death and brought life into mortality light. He opens a new path for us. And so, does Satan know in Genesis 3 that a Messiah is promised? Does he go on vacation? 
Or does he get busy trying to oppose the plan? And how can he stop Jesus from being our Messiah? Besides killing every human being. Well, would, would God have Jesus born to a woman like Jezebel? No. Would he have Jesus born to a woman who doesn't want to be the mother of Jesus, against her will? So what happens if he can get every human heart to harden against God? There's no avenue for Messiah. There's no place for Messiah to come. You say, that's ridiculous. Millions of billions of people. It can't happen. According to Genesis 6, if you believe the Bible, there was a time when there was only one righteous man left on the earth. Only one. Eight people got on the ark, so they were saved through the flood, but only one was righteous. The sons were born after that 120 years. Oh, is that right? Okay. So one righteous man left on the earth. How narrow had the pathway gotten? How long does God wait to act? So do you see the flood as punishment, or do you see the flood as an act of mercy and love, a therapeutic intervention to keep open avenue so that the species human can be saved? Sodom, Gomorrah, and the seven cities. What do you see there? God punishing? Or do you see, again, God excising a necrotic lesion to keep open avenue for Messiah? Without Sodom, Gomorrah, and the seven cities, without them, they weren't on the plane anymore. How many tribes of Israel were around by the time Jesus got, was born? Two. Only two. Ten tribes are gone. Ten tribes gone, 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 gone. See, after Abraham is called by God, Satan doesn't have to destroy the whole world anymore. He only has to destroy one branch of the human family. If he can get rid of this branch now, he knows this is the branch that he has to destroy. And if he can get rid of that branch, he blocks the avenue for Messiah. So God excises seven cities, and without their influence, you still lose ten tribes. But he took the minimal therapeutic intervention necessary to keep open avenue for Messiah. I think this is what you see happening in Israel. God, Satan is working to corrupt them with, with pagan worship all the time to destroy the knowledge of God and to shut down the avenue for Messiah. And so you see this battle back and forth constantly. 185,000 Assyrians, Satan is bringing the Assyrians to destroy and kill them all. If he can kill them all, he kills and shuts the avenue. God intervenes to keep open the avenue. So I don't see God taking vengeance at all. I see every one of these things is God therapeutically working to save humanity. So thanks for the question. Let's go on with our lesson. This divisions of, of society. In heaven's view, what are the only two divisions in society? There's only two in heaven's view, in my understanding. In harmony with God. That's harmony with God or not harmony. So the righteous and the unrighteous. The, the uh, faithful woman and the harlot. The, the sheep and the goats. And there's many other metaphors, but there's two divisions. Now, you potentially could break down the unrighteous into two subcategories. Those who are unrighteous and haven't yet come to the knowledge of God and haven't yet, but they will. And and those who are unrighteous and hardened against God and they're beyond saving. Uh, But still, it's really two divisions, the righteous and the unrighteous. What causes division in our world? Fear and selfishness. Think of this quote. The first selected message is 259. Then as the children of God are one in Christ, how does Jesus look upon caste? Upon society distinctions, upon the division of man from his fellow man because of color, race, position, wealth, birth, or attainments. The secret of unity is found in the equality of believers in Christ. The reason for all division, discord, and difference is found in separation from Christ. Christ is the center to which 
All should be attracted. For the nearer we approach the center, the closer we shall come together in feeling and sympathy and love, growing into the character and image of Jesus. With God, there is no respecter of persons. We're all equal. We all have the same condition. We're all dying of the same problem. We all need the same solution. Does God see multiple races or does God see one human race? So Christ didn't come as the second Abraham. Get your mind around that. He came as the second Adam. Many people miss this. Christianity is infected with imperialism and they think genetic descendants. A lot of Christians think genetic descendancy from Abraham actually matters. No. All humanity was infected from sin because of Adam, born as sin conceived in iniquity. Abraham's family were God's friends and agents to help fulfill and teach the reality of this larger problem and the avenue for the solution. What happens if a person refuses the healing of heart and mind, salvation, that Jesus offers? What happens if they refuse it? Does God have to take an action to cause the rejectors of his mercy to be damaged, to suffer, and to ultimately die? Do we see evil in this world, abuse, exploitation, and injustice? Do we see wrongdoing? Do we look around and see it? Why? What's the cause of it? Is the cause of abuse in our society today due to a lack of education? If we simply had better school systems, we wouldn't have abuse in our society. Is that the problem? Is, is it due to poor medical care? If we just had universal health care, we wouldn't have abuse in our society. Is it due to poverty? If we just, everybody had a, a, a living wage income, everybody gets a, a check for you know, uh, $2,000 a month for the rest of their life, uh, then there's no abuse, no exploitation of people. No sex trafficking, no child pornography. None, it all goes away. We just don't have poverty anymore. Uh, if we don't have racism, if we, everybody if, if suddenly wakes up tomorrow, we're all one race. There's only one race on earth. Does all exploitation and abuse of people go away? Sexism. We all respect equally everybody's gender without any, any uh, negativity toward anybody regarding sex and sexual identity. Uh, does all abuse of people go away if that happens? If we have gun control, get rid of all the guns in the world, does all abuse of people go away? Get, see, you see where I'm going with this? The world's governments cannot fix the problem because the problem is in the heart. That's where the problem is. Does this mean, though, because human governments can't fix the problem, that, we should, uh, that human governments should not exist and that governments should not impose any laws or policies designed to oppose abuse and exploitation, what, what some would call promoting justice? Uh, should, should we do away with governments because they can't fix the problem? Of course not. No, they're God's agencies to provide structure and stability so the gospel message that heals hearts can go forward. To prevent absolute chaos, absolutely. Uh, that's, that's, so, no, there's a place for that. But what happens when the church and Christians believe it's their mission to fix the abuses in society by legislation? What happens when Christians, because they believe it's an imperial law construct and God runs his universe this way, that our mission is to get the right officials elected and get the right laws passed, and if we can just get our society to have the right laws, then we can achieve God's, God's gospel on earth. Persecution. 
persecution. Look at history, folks. Look at the, 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 um, the Puritans. They fled persecution, but what did they do when they got here? Exactly. Uh, because, and why were they? Because they wanted people to be pure. That's why they're called the Puritans. They wanted people to be pure. That's all. And so they're doing it for your own good. That's why they're doing it. That's why they're going to imprison you. That's why they'll burn you at the stake, because they love you. You see the same thing happening in society today. Second paragraph. But these rescues were usually short-lived, and the various uh, prophets continued to point forward to the final intervention when God would put an end to evil and lift up the downtrodden. At the same time, these prophets continued to cry, How long, O Lord? How long? Can God rescue people from sin and injustice? Can he rescue them from sin and injustice in the world by using might and power? Can he do that? Okay, maybe I didn't say that right. Can he rescue people from being abused by others by using might and power? Yes, he can. He can free slaves. He can, uh, uh, he can intervene and stop somebody from you. He can use might and power to rescue a person being abused by another person. He can do that. But can God rescue people from their own sin by using might and power? When God did use might and power in Old Testament times to rescue people being exploited and abused by others, slaves in Egypt, he rescued them using might and power, great might and power. Mount Carmel, might and power, big might and power. Even the flood, might and power that we talked about, big might and power. 185,000 Syrians. But, but after each one, what do we see? After the flood, big might and power, in the next generation, are they all loyal and faithful to God? Are they building, building the Tower of Babel? They, uh, what's going on there? Uh, they, they come out of the Egypt with great might and power. What are they doing 40 days later? Worshipping a golden calf. Yeah, get your mind around that. You've just seen the 10 plagues. You've walked through a sea on dry ground with, with you know, 10-story high water. I don't know how high it was, but water on each side of you. A pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. You see the entire largest army in the world destroyed, but 40 days later you're worshipping a golden calf. Mount Carmel, after Mount Carmel, what did the people say? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And, and then they were faithful and loyal to God from that point forward. See, this is why scripture says in Zechariah 4.6, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the spirit works, says the Lord. God cannot get his victory. It is impossible. You say, nothing's impossible for God. It is impossible for God to win the war using might and power. Because you cannot get love, trust, loyalty, devotion by killing people who don't love you. It only spreads more rebellion. Because of how love actually works. God has a plan to bring sin and hardened sinners to an end. How can God bring sin and hardened sinners to an end without, in a way that eliminates rebellion, eliminates distrust, instills love, instills loyalty, doesn't cause us to fear him? How can he end it without causing people to be afraid of him? Is this not a fair question? What law lens do you answer the question through? 
See, if you answer the final end of sin and sinner's question through the imperial law lens that God is a fair judge, a just judge, he never would cause someone to pay a penalty more than they deserved. Some will be moments gone, but others will be days in the fire suffering because they deserve their punishment. But in the end, God will end their suffering and kill them justly so. You ever heard this? Does that instill love and trust? You see, you think this through. Satan would simply say, look guys, there's nothing wrong with sin. I've told you there's nothing wrong with sin. It doesn't hurt you. The problem is what God will do to you because of sin. And if he would simply get anger management classes and not use his power to kill us, we could live eternally in sin because sin doesn't harm. God's the harming one. That's the imperial lie. And that's what most people, no, sin is terminal. You understand we're alive on this earth today because of grace. So it says in Romans chapter three, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He is suspending the ultimate consequence. This world is in an artificial bubble of reality where we are hidden from the full unveiled glory of God that we will have one day when the Ancient of Days sits in his throne and rivers of fire come out from before him and we walk in the new Jerusalem in our heavenly bodies like at the Mount of Transfiguration. This world is hidden. It's a dark world right now, suspended in a bubble of of artificial reality so that God's grace can work to bring us back to heal the brokenness so we can see him face to face one day. This is what's actually going on. He can't achieve our restored character, our trust, by threatening to kill us if we don't trust him so how does he bring an end he leaves every person free to either trust him based on the evidence and all the love and grace he's provided or to reject it and prefer selfishness and harden their heart and he gives them what they freely choose in the end and what do the wicked freely choose in the end they choose it they don't want to be in his presence. They voluntarily surrender their lives in the end. Read Great Controversy in 542. The death of the wicked is, quote, voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Their condition is incurable, or the verdict of God that their condition is incurable. This is why, and we all see, and that's why the New Jerusalem at the end of the thousand years comes down and the wicked are raised and a period of time goes by, they build implements of war, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open the entire time. No one comes in. Why don't they come in? Because they're hardened. They don't want to be in that presence. That presence would be torture to them because a liar doesn't like the truth. Have you ever seen a liar who's, who's committing lie and, and, and you try to bring truth to a liar who doesn't want that truth revealed? Do they actually appreciate it? They get hostile. They get angry. They don't want it. They flee from the light of truth. Or they attack. The third paragraph talks about the Psalms and how in the Psalms many uh, complaints about God and wanting justice and so forth are are demanded from God. Um, I'm going to skip because I want to get some other issues, but I put in there the remedy remedy version of Psalms 94. It's in the notes. You can go to our website and get all of them and read them. But I think you'll uh, see a a little difference in how it comes out when when you do the Psalms through the design law view rather than the imperial view. And then the last paragraph states, in a sense, injustice is more difficult to endure among those who believe in a just God who desire justice for all people. Just God, justice. What do you hear when you hear those words? 
Which law lends? See, how do you define what's just and right? The law determines it. If you have an imperial law view, then the just and right thing is to punish the lawbreaker. If you have the design law view, you walk in on somebody, they, they have a rope around their neck, and as you open the door, they kick the chair out from under them and begin to dangle by the rope. They are breaking the law of respiration. They're a lawbreaker. Now, if you do the just and right thing, what do you do? Do you get a belt out and beat them to punish them? Do you have a tribunal? Or do you immediately intercede to rescue them, to put them back in harmony with the law? What's the just and right thing? When you understand design law, God's justice is always seeking to heal, save, and restore. That's the right thing. Um, This is out of my book, The God-Shaped Heart. Keith Johnson, an online friend who has worked for years in prison ministry, teaches inmates about God's design law, helping them to move past imposed law constructs of right and wrong and justice. He developed four questions to help them understand more clearly what justice is from God's viewpoint. Take a moment and answer these questions for yourself. One, what if you were told that your youngest child was murdered? What would you want mercy or justice for the perpetrator? Think that, answer that question in your heart. Question two, what if I told you the murderer was your oldest child? Would you want mercy or justice for the perpetrator? What if I told you that you are guilty of the murder of the only begotten son of God? Would you want mercy or justice as the perpetrator? What if I told you that you had a daughter, your only daughter, the apple of your eye, who has never given you a moment's grief, but tonight, as her father, you happen to have a tux hanging in the closet because tomorrow you're scheduled to walk her down the aisle and give her away to someone of whom you approve. If you're the mother, you have a new dress uh, and are preparing uh, for the first time uh, that you... uh, uh, and you are uh, preparing for the wedding and you've been planning this since the first time you've held her in your arms. But tonight, your daughter's at a bachelorette party with her peers, and they talk her into having one for the road, the first ever in her life. Two, three, four, five, six, seven drinks later, while she's on her way home, she wipes out a school bus full of little children on their way to camp. Everybody aboard the bus dies in a fiery inferno, but your daughter survives. Do you want mercy or justice for your daughter? And what do, what do those who are related to the victims, what about those who are related to the victims who are on the bus, what do they want? Human justice is based on human law, imposed rules, and is motivated by selfishness and seeks vengeance under the name of justice. The selfish heart has an ingrained sense of justice, but which in reality is nothing more than vengeance and which is easily exposed because such justice is sought only so long as it doesn't apply to them and theirs. Monday's lesson, we're going to read the first two paragraphs. Religion has often been criticized for a tendency to draw believers away from life here and now towards some better afterlife. The criticism is that the focus on another realm becomes a form of sanctified escapism and renders the believers uh, of less benefit to the world and society. At times, believers have left themselves open to such criticism, sometimes even cultivating preaching and practicing these kinds of attitudes. And two, we have, a terrible, we have terrible examples of those in power telling the poor and oppressed just to accept their sad lot now because when Jesus returns, he will make it all right. Is our hope in the second coming a world, uh, the world without sin, a world without disease and death, is that a misplaced hope? Is it escapism to hope for that world? 
What are your thoughts about the second point? That some telling the poor and oppressed to accept their sad lot because it will all be made right when Jesus comes. What do you think about that point? Second idea is a distortion of truth. It is true that God will restore everything when he comes. That's a fact. That's true. But this truth is used to create a false narrative that one should just accept pain, suffering, abuse, exploitation, poverty. That's not so. Christians, those who are like Christ, are to be agents of love, truth, compassion in the world, reaching out in their communities to benefit the world around them while practicing godly principles in their life, which means we at times restrain ourselves from intervening in a circumstance because to intervene would make it worse. Prodigal son story, for example. He needed to come to his senses. Some people need to hit rock bottom. We have to have discernment and judgment. When do we intervene to help? When do we leave somebody in their circumstance to wake up? Okay? But we're seeking to be helpers and make society better. But the idea that Christ suffered for our salvation is also perverted by some to teach that because Christ suffered, we should rejoice in abuse and mistreatment. And in fact, we need to be abused in order to be like Christ. This distorted idea gets used to justify exploiting and abusing others. It is true that in the process of conversion, there is suffering in your heart, mind, and soul, crucifying of the self, as selfishness is confronted and we die to self. That's a form of form that's true. But this type of suffering, and this is the type of suffering the Bible says we are to rejoice in. We are to rejoice in the suffering that brings us the conviction and crucifixion of selfishness and we die to self. That We should rejoice in that. But that suffering comes from dealing with the sin in our own lives. And it does not necessarily require physical suffering or poverty or, um, and certainly doesn't require being abused by others. But it could, it could have physical suffering. If your personal problems are addictions, you might go through withdrawal. There might be some physical suffering of the withdrawal to get free of the substance. It could include that kind of suffering. But it's not a requirement. It depends on what your circumstances are. Just this week on Facebook, somebody very near and dear to us expressed abhorrence at religious people because they are in their hope for eternity, they mistreat the earth we live on now. And they feel like they're to blame for a lot of the exploitation that goes on because, hey, this world's dying anyway. Why do we need to do anything to try to preserve it? Our hope is somewhere else. So I think there's, again, there's, a, there's an edge to that. There's a truth and there's a lie in that. It is true that we are to be stewards of the earth. So if we really were good stewards of the push back to this person, ask them if they're a vegetarian. Ask them. One of the most things that abuses our environment is the meat-eating industry because if we actually were all vegetarians, this entire cattle industry would go away. And the cattle industry is, is just, if you look at the consequences of the environment of the cattle industry, it's quite destructive to the environment. Ask them if they're a vegetarian. Well, why not if you're going to protect society? If we are to be stewards, we don't actually eat the animals we're caring for, generally, if we're going to be healthy stewards of the world. And vegetarian diet's healthier and it's more sustainable and more people in the world can be fed. So many better consequences to actually promoting vegetarianism. So put that back on them. They won't like it. Um, but, uh, it. But it's also true that there are some people that say, well, the world's coming to an end, so why do anything? We can live any way we want. I, I don't see that terribly a lot. Uh, the whole global warming thing. I, I still would like to talk to a, uh, somebody who's actually got some science and knowledge behind them without a, a bias of evolutionary constructs. Because my understanding is, regardless of whether you have an evolutionary bias or a bi biblical bias, everybody agrees there was an ice age in the past. And the, and the earth has been warming ever since the ice age. 
Ice was all the way down to like Mexico or something, supposedly, and the earth has been gradually warming ever since that point. Why would we think it's going to stop warming? It's been warming for, for whoever knows how long the ice age was. I don't know. Is that a natural process? Is it something that's just we're doing now? I mean, the idea is it's only happening now in the last 50 or 100 years because of modern society. But I don't think that's true because the, 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 the ice and the glaciers have been receding for thousand years, several thousand years or more. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think there is global warming. I think that is clear because if you look at the history and so forth, the Ice Age. But why is it global warming? That question I would like to have some more information on. But that question is politically incorrect. Um, you know, if I were to say that, then you would say, well, you're a closed-minded bird, you don't care about the earth. <laughs> but I want to get to another point here. This idea that suffering, uh, being abused, is part of the plan of righteousness. When you're being abused, you, the people point to Jesus. Well, he was, he was abused, he was crucified. Why are you protesting your abuse? Be humble, accept your abuse. Okay, this is distortion of the cross that's based in the lie of God's law and the need for God to punish Jesus. And this idea gets perpetuated in the idea of being mistreated, abused, or punished, even of the innocent, is virtuous in some way. If you're an innocent person being punished, that's virtuous. Jesus was innocent and he was punished. You're being like Jesus to be punished innocently. And so you should accept that punishment like Jesus did. This is a perversion of the cross because God didn't punish his son on the cross. It's all based in the false law, the false law lie, that narrative. If you read scripture, God didn't lay a hand on his son. My God, my God, why are you torturing me? Why are you burning me? No, why have you forsaken me? He didn't inflict anything on him. He was beaten by men, not by his father. So it's all fraudulent and has led to some very distorted theologies. In reaction to this, because of this idea that the innocent suffer is a virtuous thing, it has led to exploitation and abuse of people in certain circles, and it's justified, and people are told, just accept your lot of abuse. That's a gracious thing. Don't, don't resist it. That has led to feminist and womanist theologies. And feminist and womanist theologies uh, uh, reject this idea, and they're correct to reject it because this is a lie. God didn't punish his son. It's not virtuous to be, to, to be an innocent person and be punished. But because that's how it's taught, they come up with a new theology that the death of Christ was not necessary for our salvation. He only came to reveal a good life, and he, and he wasn't killed. The, the, his death on the cross has no saving benefit to us in this womanist theology. It was just done by evil men, who hated him because of his goodness, but it didn't have any benefit in our salvation. This is a common strategy of Satan where he will pit two false ideas against each other. You see this in Protestant Catholic debates constantly. In co Protestant Catholic debates, almost always, I don't want to say always because I, don't like, I always like to give exceptions, but frequently you will find that both positions are wrong. Because both positions are arguing inside the imperial law model. 
and in some way have a dictator God who is the source of inflicted pain and suffering. Like when you talk about the Eucharist um, and the purpose of presenting, you know, Christ presenting a sacrifice to the Father in the Catholic view, it's, well, every time you take the Eucharist, Jesus goes to his Father and offers his sacrifice to pay for your sin. And the Protestant view says, oh, no, no, um, he doesn't offer a sacrifice. That was done once and for all. What he does when you confess your sin, he goes and presents his merits to the Father to remind the Father that he's already paid for your sin. And both of them miss the point that they have a God that if Christ isn't doing that too, he will use his power to kill you. So God's the one being taken care of by the sacrifice. It's the same pagan God. It's corruption. This is what happens when you, in the imperial law model. Yes? You have a Roman Catholic theology that suffering is meritorious. And when we suffer, we offer that to God. It's like a kind of penance. Yes, and that's part of what the feminist and womanist theology is working or rebelling against as well. And so then they reject the whole substitutionary nature of Christ's death in this theology because they don't understand the problem. They don't understand design law. When Adam and Eve sinned, they changed their very nature. And no human being descendant of Adam and Eve could fix the problem, could develop a perfect sinless nature, could restore God's design law into the species human. So Christ came, picked up Adam... It's picked up humanity, broken off or damaged by Adam, became a human, was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. He destroyed that infection. And thus he wrote in God's design law. So it says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, once he became perfect, excuse, excuse me, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. Bible perfection is not sinlessness. Bible perfection is maturity of character. That you're so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, you can't be moved from it. Christ came as a human being. You see, God can create sinless beings. God cannot create character. Character has to be developed by the choices of the person. Christ came as a human being and developed a perfect character. Thus, once he was made perfect, once he developed a perfect character, he became the source of salvation. Why did he have to die? It was the only way to eliminate. He was tempted in every way just like we are. Look in Gethsemane. We're tempted by our own feelings, it says in James 1. He's got these powerful feelings in Gethsemane. What are they pulling him to do? What is he being tempted to do? And he had to eliminate that. That part of him that, that, that anguishes, and you feel it. You want, to, you want to feel how strong that drive is for you? Imagine somebody's drowning you. You're underwater. You're being drowned. And you have a knife in your hand. How strong will the urge be? That's that, that's that carnal thing. Christ had to kill it. And he had to restore perfect other-centered love. Greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend. That's the other-centered beneficence. No, no fear-driven survival drives. That's not godly. That's, that's the law of sin and death. And thus, if you go into a Tuesday's lesson about the resurrection hope, it leads you straight into the resurrection hope. See, have you ever wondered Christ said to his followers multiple times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be uh, mistreated by men. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise on the third day. He said it multiple times, right? But you ever notice that Ellen White wrote in the Desire of Ages, um, 753, Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Have you ever wondered about that? Hey, how can, he's telling his disciples over and over and over again he's going to rise again, but he can't see through the portal. How do you know? How many of you can tell me what will happen if I let go of this stylus? How many can predict? Do you have the gift of prophecy? How can you know it's a future event? 
because you know the law of gravity. You see, when you understand, see, Christ understood his mission. He understood what he's here to achieve. He understood the cause of, of, of death. And he understood what he was going to destroy. He was going to destroy that infection of fear and selfishness. And he was going to restore the law of love, which is the law of life, back into the humanity he assumed. So he predicted accurately, I'm going to go. I'm going to face death. I'm going to give my life freely. I'm going to destroy that drive of fear and selfishness, that survival drive. I'm going to restore the law of love in, and I'm going to rise again. But he did not have a prophetic vision to see the future. There was no vision of the future he had to see it. So he couldn't see through the portal of the tomb prophetically. Time was not pulled back where he could see a future. But he knew what would happen, so that's how he could predict it. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that exciting? And this is what happens when you come back to understand God's design law. And this is the last message of mercy to the go to the world. There's a story of Kent Whitaker I'm not going to have time to share with you. It's in the Thursday's lesson. About judgment, real quick. People get confused about the judgment. We talked about it earlier. The reason they get confused about the judgment is because there's three judgments. And they conflate them into one. First judgment, saw another angel fly in midair at the eternal gospel. Fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment has come. This is Romans 3, 4. This is the judgment happening when we are evaluating the truth about God and we make a judgment of whether we can trust him or not. God is on trial. May you win your case when you're being tried, it says in Romans 3, 4. First judgment, do we trust God or not? Second judgment. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant who you seek, who will come, says the Lord Almighty, who can endure the day of his coming. He will come as a launderer's uh, soap and, and a refiner of, of silver. He will purify the Levites as silver and gold. So I will come near to you for judgment, it says. This is Malachi 3, 1 through 5. This is uh, the same message as Daniel eight fourteen. Daniel eight fourteen. Ellen White says, The coming of our high priest... To the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14 and the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days presented in Daniel 7.13 and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same event. This is the second judgment. And this is Jesus' work in the heavenly sanctuary making judgments about who has put their trust in him so that he can fix the brokenness in them and making judgments about what residual elements in our character need fixing. This is the judgment, the judgment of a heavenly physician making evaluations and judgments of all who are trusting in him and fixing the broken pieces and restoring his righteousness within. The second judgment. The third judgment, then I saw a great white throne and him was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were open, another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was in the book of life. And I don't have time to go in what all that means and what that looks like. But this is simply when God reveals his life-giving glory. And you can read about this in Great Controversy. You can go to our God in Your Church DVD set. And in the Difficult Questions section, I, I go through this as well. And it's simply when truth is revealed and everyone's condition is accurately diagnosed. Let him who is righteous be righteous still, and him who is wicked be wicked still. And the universe makes a right judgment about God's handling of it, showing that no one is left outside the city because God kept them out, but they kept themselves out. And that's how trust is, is established for eternity.
Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much, so much to go over, so many wonderful truths that you've given to us, and we ask that your Holy Spirit will come help uh, remove the distortions of imperialism that we've grown up with, and help us see you as our designer, our creator, the one who's made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and help us embrace your design laws, and may the Spirit come and take the victory of Christ, reproducing in us, finding those pieces that need to be fixed, and, and helping us identify and align with and choose those truths that will transform us into your character. We pray in your holy name. Amen.